Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us, as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I would draw our attention this morning to the Gospel according to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 this morning. This is one of the highlights of our year, Resurrection Sunday, as we focus on the fact that Jesus is alive. I hope that this morning your hearts have been filled with joy as we've already sung to Him praises, as we've drawn our minds to Him, our hearts to Him. And so I pray this morning that as we look into His Word that our hearts would continue to be stirred in praise and in joy. And here this morning we read in John chapter 20 the resurrection event, the resurrection account of what happened on that resurrection Sunday, the first resurrection Sunday. So if you would stand with me as we read John chapter 20 together this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. 
not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The human eye is an amazing organ that God has created. And if we were to study the intricacies of the eye, we would find a web of complexity. The human eye has over 200 million working parts. It can process over 36,000 pieces of information per hour and see as many as 10 million different colors. It is said that in the average lifetime, you will see 24 million different images. And that half of your brain is dedicated to processing the images that you see. It's said that 80% of what you know about the world around you comes through your sense of sight, seeing, And the human eye can detect a luminance range of 10 to the 14th power. That's 100 trillion. Not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds impressive. (laughs) Think about that. In your average life, 24 million images that you will see. How many of those images will remain etched in your mind? 100? 200? 500? Let's put ourselves for a moment in the shoes of the people who experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw things. They saw images that would be etched in their minds forever. But is that all that the resurrection focuses on? Is just merely what is seen? The focus of the resurrection is not merely on what is seen, but also what is believed. Because there are two kinds of seeing. There is the physical seeing, perceiving the physical world around you, but there is also the spiritual seeing. And God has created an organ for spiritual seeing that is called faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. But we wrestle with these two types of seeing, don't we? Why do we wrestle with them? We wrestle because we want to place more emphasis on the physical scene. 
But in our heart of hearts, we know that there is more to see than just the physical. And that's what John 20 wrestles with. It wrestles with the physical seeing and the spiritual seeing or believing. And so I want us to take a look this morning and see what we can see from John 20. And here's where I believe it starts. The resurrection commences with what you do not see. The resurrection commences with what you do not see. There is one thing that is absolutely necessary in order to see. One thing you have to have in order for the organ, those 200 million parts to to work, there's one thing that you have to see in order for them to do their job. What is it? You have to have light. Darkness is the enemy of sight. You cannot see if it's dark. And this is precisely where the event of the resurrection begins. It begins very early in the morning on the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus. The Friday before, Jesus had been hung on a tree. He had been crucified by Roman soldiers. He had experienced the wrath of God falling upon Him because of our sin. He had sacrificed Himself for us, and He willingly, voluntarily died. He breathed His last. Everything that had been working in his body came to a halt. It stopped. And Jesus was then taken down from the cross that same day, prepared for burial, and placed in a new tomb. If we were to go to the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Mary Magdalene sees where they lay the body. So she knows where Jesus has been buried. And now our event picks up here, this first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're here every Sunday morning, is to remember that this is the morning that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. It's the Lord's day. And here it is, the third day, and what does it say? While it was still dark. Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb Mary was someone in whom something miraculous had happened. Mary Magdalene at one time had been possessed by seven demons. She was filled with darkness. But something happened in Mary's life. Mary encountered someone. She encountered the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when He met her, drove the darkness out of her life. And now, here she is, having known this light, coming to the tomb in darkness, but she is about to experience the dawning of a new day. And she arrives there at the tomb while it's still dark. You can imagine, it might be hard to see, but she sees one thing. The stone has been rolled away from the tomb. That's all we know at this point, but she sees that. And she runs as fast as she can to the place where Peter and this other disciple are staying. Who is this other disciple, this disciple whom Jesus loved, it says there. Well, this is the same disciple who 
laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. This disciple is the author of this book, John. And so Mary relays the message of what she has seen, or rather what she has not seen. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Notice Mary says, we do not know. From the other accounts of the Gospels, we know that Mary was not alone. There were other women with her. But John, the author of this book, focuses on Mary because of the personal encounter she has with Jesus just a few moments later. But what do Peter and John do? So they hear this message from Mary. They've taken the Lord's body. We don't know where they've taken Him, laid Him, put Him. Peter and John have an urgency about them. They, they didn't discount or discredit what Mary said. They didn't say, well, Mary, you know, it's still dark outside. You probably just missed it. He's there, but you probably just couldn't see that well. No, Peter and John take her at her word, and they had to go, and they had to see for themselves. What, what would it take? What would it take for you to hear a message, and then you get up and you run as fast as you can to that place. I mean, if Jesus' body was gone, uh, it's not like there's much sense of urgency, right? Why are you running? What would it take for you? What message would you have to hear for you to say, I've got to get up and I've got to run to that place? This was a such message that Peter and John heard where they had to get up and they ran to the tomb as fast as they can. And it says that, that John there reached the tomb first. And he stooped to look into the tomb. Tombs in those days, the openings were not as big so you could just walk into them. You, you usually had to crouch down, stoop to get into the tomb. The opening wasn't too big. And so we see that John gets there first and what does he do? He sticks his head in the tomb. He sees the linen cloths there, but he doesn't see Jesus. Then Peter comes, and Peter goes all the way in. <laughs> goes all the way into the tomb. He sees the linen cloths there, and then he also sees the face cloth, the cloth that had been put on Jesus' face, on his head. He sees that neatly folded and laid in a separate spot. What's important about this? Why is why is this important to us? A couple reasons. First, it tells us that Jesus' body has not been stolen. That's the whole point of the linen cloths. If people were going to steal Jesus' body, they would not have taken the time to unwrap him, unwrap all the linen cloths, fold them up neatly, and place them there on the shelf where Jesus had laid. No, what, what would you do if you were going to steal something? You grab it and run. You grab it and go. Jesus' body was not stolen. But the fact that the presence of the linen cloths were still there tells us something else. Someone had to unwrap Jesus. Or maybe even this. Jesus unwrapped himself. Took off the face cloth, folded it up, and laid it to the side. But the th second thing it tells us is that they didn't see what they were expecting to see. 
Mary and John and Peter were expecting to see a dead body. They were expecting to see a dead Jesus. They saw a stone rolled away. They saw an empty tomb. They saw the burial clause. But they didn't see the most important thing. They didn't see Jesus. That is who they went there to see, to see Jesus' corpse. And what does it say about John when he goes in finally to the tomb? John, when he went into the tomb, he saw and he believed. What did John see? He saw all of the evidence he needed to believe that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He didn't need to see the body. He didn't need to see more. It was enough that he didn't see the body and that then he believed. And he believed even before he understood the Scriptures. Now, referring to the Old Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's there from the Old Testament speaks of the fact that the Messiah must rise again from the dead. The disciples would come to understand this. They would see this from the Old Testament, but as of yet, they did not understand it. But John, even though he did not understand that prophecy from Scripture, still believed. The fact that John didn't see the body did not keep him from believing. The emphasis was not on what they did see, but what had disappeared from their sight. Jesus was gone. That's how the resurrection starts. No body. But the resurrection culminates with what you do see. So while it starts with what you do not see, the resurrection culminates with what you do see. And now... We turn our attention back to Mary. Peter and John had gone back to their homes. You imagine the story that they told. What did you see? Nothing. (laughs) We didn't see Jesus. But Mary's still at the tomb, and she's there all alone, distressed, weeping. Distraught. It appears all the other women have left, all the disciples have left, there's no one there, it's just her. And as she's weeping for the Savior who she has loved, she stoops down to look into the tomb one more time. Maybe I've missed something. Maybe I need to take another look. Maybe I just need to double check, make sure that Jesus isn't there. And what does she see when she looks into the tomb? Two angels sitting there clothed in white, sitting on that ledge or that shelf where Jesus' body would have laid, one seated where his head would have been, one seated where his feet would have been. And what do they say? Woman, why are you weeping? I'm amazed. Think about that for a moment. If you were to see Two angels clothed in white. What would be your response? Angels. Wow. But Mary isn't distracted by the angels. Her focus doesn't go to the angels. Her focus is still on the fact that Jesus, the Savior whom she, has lo- who she loves, is not there. His body is not there. And what's fascinating is that 
it appears she believes that he is still dead. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary's frame of mind is still focused on Jesus' death. She's looking for a dead body. And immediately after she has this short interaction with these two angels, she turns and she sees Jesus standing. They had been looking for a dead Jesus lying on a shelf, but here is Jesus standing upright. But Mary at this point does not know that it is Jesus. She is kept from recognizing him. Remember, she's still looking for a corpse. And then not only does Mary see Jesus, but she hears Jesus speak. And he asks her two questions. One of them the same as the angel. Angels, women, why, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You find those questions ironic. Because Mary shouldn't be weeping. She should be rejoicing. The one whom she is seeking is standing there right in front of her and is speaking to her. Mary, your weeping should be over. Your search has come to an end. But Mary still does not see. She thinks that it's the gardener. And she wants to know if he has the corpse. Wake up, Mary. Wake up. Your Savior stands before you. Open your eyes and see the light. And then Jesus says Mary's name, Mary. There's only one person who says her name like that. Jesus says this, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Mary recognized the voice of her shepherd that morning. And his voice is unmistakable when you hear it. Have you heard that voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep, saying, come into my fold, come into my fold. I'm here, I'm standing before you. What are you waiting for? Mary recognized the voice of Jesus and cries out, teacher, She's found him. She's found the one she's been looking for. Or rather, he has found her. But it is not what she expected. In the flash of a moment, it becomes clear she had been looking for the wrong thing. She'd been looking for a dead body, a beaten body, a body that had been disfigured and tortured on a cross. But now she sees a living and risen Jesus Christ. She had seen him die, but now he stands before her alive. And not just alive for a little longer, no, alive forevermore. What would you do if the one whom you loved, who you lost was there standing before you alive. You would do what Mary did. You would cling to him. You wouldn't want to let him go for fear of losing him again, for fear of never seeing him again, for fear that all that you had gained would be stripped away from you, taken again, that you would revert to that place of being distraught, alone, despairing, in darkness all over again. 
the light was shining brightly before her and she was seeing clearly the dawning of a new day because Jesus had risen from the dead. And then Jesus says something fascinating to her, doesn't he? Do not cling to me. Jesus, why do you say that? She loves you. Isn't it good that she's clinging to you? It's right for Jesus to say, Mary, do not cling to me. Because he's not going to die again. Mary, don't cling to me as if I'm going to leave you again. Don't cling to me as if I've merely recovered, if I've merely been healed. No, I've been risen from the dead. I've been resurrected. I've triumphed over death and the grave, and I'm marked out as the one who is the Christ and the Lord. Go tell my disciples I'm ascending into heaven. Go tell my disciples I'm not going to die again. Go tell my disciples I'm alive and that I'm going to my Father and your Father, my God, and your God. Mary sent and she goes and tells the disciples. He's alive. I've seen the Lord. And think about it. Put yourself in Mary's shoes just for one moment. Me, Mary, the first one to see Jesus, the first one to talk to Jesus, the first one to touch Jesus, the one who used to have all of this darkness in her life, the one who was at one time possessed by seven demons. I've seen the light, and he's risen from the dead. This was the age where death reigned. This was the age where darkness covered everything. You couldn't escape it. You couldn't get rid of it. But now the light has pierced the darkness. Now life has penetrated the age where death reigned. Death, darkness was coming to an end. The age of life had dawned. And seeing the risen Lord was seeing that the coming age had invaded this present age. The age of life is inaugurated in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see do you see the light? Do you see the light of life? In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is shining, and the darkness is fleeing away. We've seen the resurrection began with what they do not see. It culminates in what they do see. And now we see the risen Lord making specific actions, taking specific actions towards people. And so here now we see the risen Lord confirms the disciples who are sent out rejoicing in what they see. The risen Lord confirms the disciples and he sends them out rejoicing in what they see. could only imagine the joy coursing through the veins of Mary as she went back to proclaim the good news to the, to the disciples. Everything, life, around her that had been monochromatic, black and white, had turned into beautiful technicolor because of the light of the resurrection of Jesus. What boldness, what excitement, what joy would have invigorated Mary and her life? 
But it would appear that that same announcement did not have the effect on the disciples. On that same Sunday, in the evening, we see a very different scene with the disciples. They've locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews. They had just seen what the Jews had done to Jesus a few days earlier, and now Jesus' body has gone missing. Where might you go to start looking for the body? You might find those people who were closest to Jesus. And so here are the disciples huddled around in a room. They've locked themselves away out of fear. But in their moment of fear, in their moment of fear, think for a moment, what is it that you need in your life to remedy your fear? What is it in your life that you need to remedy your fear? The disciples experienced it that day when Jesus came and stood among them. They needed the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them, to drive out their fear. And so Jesus comes to them and I think at this point, it, it would be wise for us just as a word of caution. So let me plead with you for a moment this morning as we look at the text here, as these disciples were there in this room, and it says that Jesus came and stood among them. I think we need to be careful because the text does not explicitly say that Jesus walked through walls or that Jesus walked through the door. And I, I want us to be careful because the whole point of Jesus coming to the disciples is this. He was real. He had a real body. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. Now, Jesus had a glorified body, yes, and Jesus' glorified body operates on a different level than our fallen bodies. But we need to be careful because the text doesn't say that Jesus walked through walls or walked through the door. And in fact, if you look at all the accounts, there's no accounts in the Bible that say that Jesus walked through walls or walked through doors. So, I just want us to be careful that we say what the Scripture says. We say, well, then how did he get in there if he didn't walk through the wall? How did he get in if he went and walked through the door? I mean, sometimes people have this idea, this Star Trek thing in their minds, like Jesus was on one side of the door, and then he dematerialized and somehow rematerialized on the opposite side. Well, I don't know how he got in. But I think there are other ways than walking through a door or a wall. I mean, in fact, Peter in Acts 12 is in prison, and as he's leaving the prison, guess what happens? Doors just open automatically for him, and he walks out. So, I mean could be that the door even opened for Jesus and he walked through the door. At least we have scriptural precedent for something like that happening. But again, I want us to be very careful. Just let's stay to what the text says. We say that the doors were locked, but then Jesus stood among them. But Jesus brings this comforting news to them as well. Peace be with you. In fact, if you notice in our text, he says that three times. Peace be with you be with you. That's what the disciples needed to hear. 
the disciples needed to hear that they could have peace. Real peace because Jesus is alive. And more importantly, because Jesus is alive, they are able to have real peace with God. The real unrest that one has in their soul can only be calmed by the Savior who has overcome death. And so Jesus shows them the nail marks that are in his hands. They show him the side that was pierced. And then what did they do? They rejoiced. They were glad to see Jesus alive. It brought joy to them to know that the one whom they recognized as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God's anointed king, rose again from the dead. Crucifixion was not the end of him. A large stone rolled in front of his tomb was not the end of him. Letting his body try to rot and decay was not the end of him. No, up from the grave he arose. And now he was going to send out his disciples. He was going to send out these people with authority. Just as God, his Father, had sent him, so he was now going to send out his disciples How had Jesus been sent out? He was sent out not to be served, but to serve. Jesus was sent out as one who was to sacrifice. And so now he's sending out his disciples with authority. He's sending his disciples out not to be served, but to serve. He's sending out his disciples sacrificially. But Christ knew that they needed something. If they're going to accomplish this task... They need something to help them be able to accomplish it. Jesus had already promised to the the disciples another helper who would come to them. The Holy Spirit. And he says this, The Holy Spirit will not come to you until I go away. And so Jesus here, knowing that they need the Holy Spirit, knowing that they need the helper, does something a little odd, doesn't he? Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Why is Jesus breathing on the disciples? Well, I think something is happening here, a symbolic action that Jesus is making. We know from later on in Scripture, in Acts, that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. 50 days after the Passover. That's when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they go out proclaiming the gospel. But Jesus here is doing something symbolically as he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because we're being told by Jesus that he is the giver of spiritual life. What does does God do back in the book of Genesis After he creates man, he breathes into man, and man becomes a living being. He breathes in him the breath of life. Jesus, by breathing on his disciples, was demonstrating that he is the giver, the creator, the author of spiritual life, and that now there will be a new messianic community where all those who follow him, all those who believe in him, will receive the Spirit, will be born again. 
will be resurrected and made spiritually, spiritually alive. And then these disciples are given this commission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, an odd, odd commission because who is it that forgives sin? God is the one who forgives sin. Jesus, how can you say that you send out these disciples and if, if they, it looks like they're granting forgiveness, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold it, it's with, withheld. The basis of such a commission comes from understanding the message the apostles were given. They were given the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness is declared on the basis of the gospel. If you go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus and people accept it and accept Jesus and turn from their sin and put their faith in him, those are the ones who are forgiven. But those who reject it, those who turn their back on it, those who do not believe, you cannot pretend like those people are forgiven. With no belief, there is no assurance of forgiveness. We likewise, those who follow Jesus, have been confirmed and are sent out with a message. And it is our desire that people hear the message and repent and believe and receive forgiveness. But we cannot kid ourselves into thinking that those who would reject such a message can find real, meaningful, lasting, life-giving forgiveness. The risen Lord goes on in our text to confront the skeptic who has to see to believe. The risen Lord also confronts the skeptic who has to see to believe. There was one problem when Jesus came to the disciples. As he turned their fear into courage, as he confirmed them, one of the disciples was not there. Thomas was not among the disciples at that time. And Thomas, even after the other disciples had told him, we have seen the Lord, it wasn't good enough for him. It brought a nickname upon Thomas. Do you know that nickname? Doubting Thomas. He was a doubter. He was a skeptic. Unless I see his hands where the nails were driven through, unless I put my finger in those wounds, unless I take my hand and place it in his side, unless those things happen, I will never believe. The disciples' testimony, the disciples' witness was not good enough for him. Here is a man who had been with Jesus, who had seen all of the miracles and signs done by Jesus. Here was a man who had heard Jesus teach. He had been so close to Jesus, but now he seemed so far away. He was committed to remain in unbelief unless he saw Jesus for himself. He had to experience it for himself. How many doubters... How many skeptics refuse to believe today? They need some undeniable proof, a proof that they make up in their own minds. If Jesus would just do that, or if Jesus would just do this, or if God would just show himself, then I would believe. Sometimes, perhaps the greatest doubters and the greatest skeptics are those who 
were at one time close to the church. They had heard the message, they'd been taught about Jesus, but now they say, I will never believe. I wonder in my heart of heart how that works out for them. Do they have peace? Do they have security? Do they find comfort for their weary souls? Do they find what they are so desperately longing for? I imagine that week between Thomas declaring, I will never believe, and the time when Jesus appeared to him as being a very difficult and trying week. Imagine that. Here, Thomas says, I will never believe, and then it says eight days later. So there's this span of about a week where Thomas is wrestling. All of my friends, they've seen Jesus. They've touched Jesus. Why not me? Why am I the one that's left out? Jesus, why are you so far away from me? That in that week, maybe Thomas is even hardened in his doubting. And all of his friends are saying, we have seen the Lord. But then, in God's grace... And in God's mercy, and in God's love for Thomas, Jesus comes to him, stands among the disciples again and says, peace be with you. And he turns to Thomas, and he looks at Thomas directly. He says, Thomas, put your finger here in my hand. Put your hand in my side. And then he says something of great significance. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What does Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas, you have every right to doubt. You have, you have every right to be skeptical. I'm glad you held out until I could prove myself to you. Is that what Jesus says? No, he says, Thomas, stop doubting. Thomas, do not persist in your unbelief. Thomas, it's time to believe. Do you need to hear those words today? Stop doubting. Do not persist in unbelief, but believe. What doubts are in your heart? What is it that is keeping you from believing? I tell you, you may think it's very complex. You may think of all those questions that you have that you want answered. You may try to make it more difficult than it needs to be. So let's put it plain and simple this morning. Because the same thing that was holding Thomas back is holding you back. What is it that is keeping you from believing? It is that you haven't encountered the living God. Thomas saw Jesus He put his fingers in the nail marks. He put his hand in his side. He heard Jesus speak, and he understood something for the very first time. He was in the presence of God himself, and Thomas changed right then and right there. He changed because he had encountered God. He could not remain the same. 
He changed and he believed because he encountered God. And you can do the same thing today, my friend. You can encounter the living God in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Being in the presence of Christ was being in the presence of God. You've seen him today in the word of God. You've heard about him today. today. You've encountered him. And if you've encountered Jesus, you've encountered God. That's why Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. When Thomas experienced God, it led him to worship and worship rightly. It led him to worship Jesus Christ. It led him to do what he had been created to do, to worship and glorify God. And it was intensely personal. This was not someone else's Lord. This was not someone else's God. No, this was his God who had accepted him and found him and saved him. This is Thomas' affirmation of Jesus' deity. And Jesus, being God, rightly accepts the worship. What Thomas did is exactly what we should do. This is perhaps the greatest affirmation of Christ's deity in the New Testament. And what does Jesus do? He accepts it. He accepts the worship. It brings us back to the very beginning of John's Gospel where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Thomas could not have said anything stronger or more profound about Jesus than what he did. Jesus found the skeptic. Jesus found the doubter of this age and changed him and gave him life. It means that Jesus can change you today. It means that Jesus can save you today. Stop doubting and believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is Lord. That He did live the perfect life, die on the cross, bearing our shame and our sin, granting forgiveness to those who believe in Him, and believe that He is alive because God has raised Him from the dead. And let me say something this morning. If you are someone who has believed, but you know a doubter, or a skeptic. Christ can still change that person. Pray for that person. Pray that they would encounter the living God. Because even the doubter, even the skeptic of this age, do not have to stay that way. Finally, the risen Lord calls us to believe because only then do you really see. The risen Lord calls us to believe because only then do we really see. Have you ever said this? I won't believe it unless I see it. I'm fascinated here. There's this big contrast between John and Thomas. Remember John at the very beginning of the chapter? He saw an empty tomb and he believed. He hadn't seen the risen Christ. He hadn't touched the risen Christ. He hadn't heard the risen Christ speak, but he still believed that Christ had been risen from the dead. Thomas, on the other hand, said he would never believe unless he placed his fingers and his hands in the wounds. I won't believe it until I see it. 
We might say such things today, but Jesus tells Thomas something completely extraordinary. Thomas, do you believe because you've seen me? Thomas, your belief is based on what you have seen. But there are others. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. There are those who will not physically see the risen Lord but will still believe. They don't have to see in order to believe. The important thing is not the physical seeing. The important thing is the spiritual seeing, the believing. The important thing is having faith. But not just any faith. I'm talking about faith in Jesus' name. Believing in Jesus. It's the object of our faith that is of the utmost importance. This is why John wrote his gospel. It gives us here this purpose statement of the book. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The point is that people believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is the very Son of God Himself, that He condescended to us, mankind, in flesh. He is the incarnate One. This is what Jesus is still calling you to, to today, to believe in Him and to have life in His name. There is no spiritual life, no eternal life apart from connection to Jesus and belief in Jesus. What might be your problem this morning? What might be, what might be your problem as we think about this scene? You think that you see. And thinking that you see, you think that you've seen it all. There's nothing else to see. There's nothing left for you to see. But in your heart, and in your soul, you know that life is more than physical seeing. It is more than filling your life up with what you can see. If this life is just physical seeing, then we should eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. That is the life without the resurrection of Christ, and that is a life to be pitied. In fact, John shows us in his gospel that this is the life of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, they thought that they saw so clearly. They thought that they knew everything. They thought that they had, had it all together. They thought they had life. Everything looked good on the outside. But what does Jesus tell them? Because you say, we see, your guilt remains. Jesus came into this world so that those who do not see, those who are blind, might spiritually see and believe. And this is where everyone must start. It starts with realizing that you are blind, that you don't know where you are going, that you don't know what you are doing, that you don't have anything together. It comes with realizing that the God of this world has blinded your mind with unbelief to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, that you are engulfed in darkness, but now the light has come. And God, who says, light, shine out of darkness, has shone in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
The result of such believing is life, glorious life, resurrection life, blessed life, eternal life, life that begins right now. And it is this life that will lead you to live your life walking by faith and not by sight. This is what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is no assurance of things hoped for. There's no assurance of things hoped for. It's merely a pipe dream. But if there is an assurance of things hoped for, if there is an assurance of eternal life, if there is an assurance of eternal glory that awaits you, then that assurance is based on what we are doing here today. The fact that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and is alive. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Take all that we are today, all that we have, and reign supreme. Conquer every wicked, vile thought. As we gaze on the resurrection, Father, let us see life. And let us see that that is the life that we need. That's the life that we need to live. That's the life that only you can give. For those who put their faith and trust in you, let us rejoice that you've raised us from the dead. We were at once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once with no hope, but we were found by Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning who does not know you, that on hearing these words that Jesus is alive, that coming into contact with this event of the resurrection would cause them to call out, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this kind of life? What must I do to know this kind of joy? Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts today. Let us not leave here just thinking that everything can be the same. But having come in contact, having encountered the living Christ, Son of God, may we say, I can never be the same. We pray this all in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.